So, I'm writing a novel, is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive special rewards like me shaking their hand firmly, maintaining eye contact, and making it clear that I get them. If you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash soimwritinganovel. Last time, I did a bunch of mini-interviews with all of the fiction writers from New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine, the brand new magazine that I'm an editor of. Check it out at newedgesswordandsorcery.com. Yes. And then I said, next time I will give you the behind-the-scenes episode on me making the magazine. But then I changed my mind. A podcaster's prerogative. So what are we doing today? Well, I mean, you read the episode title, so... <laughs> you probably understand that it's an interview with Scott Dorward about weird fiction, sword and sorcery, that kind of thing. Yeah, I wanted to do this probably because I just wanted to chat with Scott again. I had him on the other podcast, on the Worlds of the Merrill Collection, and I will link to that episode in the show notes. I want to chat with him again, and I want to chat with him specifically about the kind of intersection between horror and weirdness and sword and sorcery and how like the weird and weird fiction is such a key part of the genre. Because A, I think it's really neat, and I think you will too. And B, as I'm going into the final quarter of my novel, it's always been in my head the extra weird bit. So <laughs> I thought it would be good to discuss the weird with someone who would understand it. Among other things, Scott is a game designer who's done all kinds of work on the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. He also is one-third of the hosting Cerebus behind The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a long-running, most excellent podcast about primarily the works of Howard Philip Lovecraft and the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, but also talking about all kinds of weird fiction in general, including a good run of episodes on sword and sorcery, which I rather enjoyed. So, without further ado, let's get to Scott. Sneeze, that's perfect time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, no, it's false just a, it's, it, I don't know about false alarm, but it's, it's not. <laughs> I, it, it'll catch us both by surprise when it's ready. Anyway, I'm going to leave this all in. Uh, here we are with Scott about to sneeze, or is he? Doorward. <laughs> as, as he's known through the aisles and beyond. Uh, thanks for joining us, Scott. Hi. <laughs> Uh, hi, Oliver. Thank you very much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, now I've had you on both podcasts uh, that I do, yes. which uh, you're the first one to claim that. You can you can put that on the fridge. Oh, um, bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, you and I, I, I got, listen to surprise, surprise, I got uh, chatting way too much with Scott before hitting the bloody record button. So uh, <laughs> well, let's just get into it before I get into more digressions. Weird fiction, sword and sorcery, all that jazz. I'd argue that weird fiction is the sorcery in Sword and Sorcery, that without it we wouldn't have that marvellous fantasy subgenre at all. Arguably the genre was born because Robert E. Howard couldn't sell a historical adventure story, so he sprinkled some weird in there that he might literally sell it to a magazine called Weird Tales. But what is weird fiction? 
Scott, could you please share with us your take on what is the difference between weird fiction and horror in general? What exactly is weird with a capital W? Oh, that is such a difficult question to answer, mainly because genre definitions really are pretty meaningless anyway. They're useful ways for us to group types of stories together, but fundamentally they're more marketing tools than they are anything else. And they change over the years. And so I think a lot of what we think of as weird fiction is just stuff that probably would just fit into different genres these days, but they were genres that didn't exist back in the 1920s. And so weird fiction just became this catch-all name for I suppose the facile definition would be the kind of fiction that would sell to weird tales. And it <laughs> was this, this mishmash of science fiction and fantasy and horror. But before those genre labels were really in common parlance, I, I, I mean, Lovecraft did make some references to science fiction. Or I, I think he called it something like scienti fiction or something like that instead. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So. But but that was still something quite different, perhaps, from the weird, but at the same time, it was the same thing. And, you know, really, I think what the whole thing was, was just this, this group of writers who were selling to the pulp uh, magazines, using whatever strange ideas popped into their heads, uh, sometimes just creating new genres out of these these things that they just cobbled together and this just became known as weird fiction i, I mean lovecraft mentions you know his love of the weird and talks about weird tales and weird fiction an awful lot but i think you know he's just using it as a catch-all there for you know these are the things i like rather than you know it being a, a neat definition of well anything yeah, and I think that's part of the charm. You know, it's this lack mm. of codification, right? Uh, it's one of the things I've, I've said many times on the podcast before that I love about sword and sorcery in general is that it was all sort of the basic framework of it was hammered out long before Dungeons and Dragons rolled along and, oh, and God, certainly yeah. before it exploded in the early 80s, which I, a lot of people have made a compelling argument. It was a big part of how fantasy fiction became a little like, well, if you see a dwarf, you know what it is, you know, uh, kind of thing. Um and, and and so I guess that is that does make it a bit of a bugger of a question. Yeah, how do you define the indefinable, Scott? Uh, <laughs> but it, it does seem to be a, a term that has had legs. I think about that big uh, collection of short fiction called, I think, just literally the weird that uh, Jeff Vandermeer oh, yes. and um, oh shoot, his wife, whose name I forget. Pardon me, she's her own person, but she's also his wife. Uh, and uh, they they put together. I think is it Anne? I think it's Anne, isn't it? I think so. There, yeah. But yeah, it's literally just called The Weird. It's a it's a real doorstop, mm. uh, and it goes all the way from contemporary stories by like China Mayville and so on, from right now, going all the way back to kind of before the term really got thrown around. When you have stuff from like mm. the Edwardian era, like uh, The Willows, yeah, uh, which is a, a wonderful story. I've heard you bring oh, yes. it before. Uh, I love it, folks. And of course, I can't remember the name of the bloody author again. I'm having a morning. Scott, do you remember the name? Alton uh, and Blackwood. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, The Willows. Look it up, folks. It's worth it. So it has legs, even if the legs are. We're not sure how many there are or, or what's up with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I think the other interesting aspect of the weird in sword and sorcery in general from this period is that it predates so much of what we think of as fantasy anyway, that you know, the fantasy mm-hmm. genre has become something very different and very uh, you know, definable, thanks to Tolkien and then uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like you mentioned. But before then, you know, all this stuff that was coming out of weird fiction, yeah, that that was that was the foundation. I mean, this predates you know, all the the tropes and concepts of fantasy that you see in fiction today. Yeah, and it mixes in tropes from all over the show. You know, I was just having having a laugh with some people over on the Whetstone Tavern Discord last night about the hard-boiled trope that absolutely finds its way into early sword and sorcery of the hero who gets knocked out as a convenient way of ending the scene. (laughs) And, you know, uh, something I'm riffing on in one of my own pieces I'm writing where I make one of the co-protagonists a narcoleptic so I can just press that button (laughs) as needed. (laughs) Nice. And I think think that is a huge part always of what appeals to me is this this mishmash feeling. This this, uh, You're almost going back to the primordial in your own life when you're uh, a little, you know, boy, girl, or non-binary playing with your action figures and not caring which franchise they're from or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of early days in life, what was uh, your introduction, Scott, to Sword and Sorcery? And was there a first or earliest that you can remember Sword and Sorcery tale which you remember really nailing you to the floor with its weird elements? I came to Sword and Sorcery, I guess, comparatively late. I was probably about 16 or 17 when I first brushed up against it. And I came to it via Michael Moorcock. I'd read, I think it was John Clute's wonderful encyclopedia of science fiction. And I'd read about the Jerry Cornelius stories, which were obviously science fiction rather than fantasy or sword and sorcery. But they got me interested in Michael Moorcock as a writer. And so I went out and I picked up what books of his I could. And I I seem to remember I had trouble finding the Cornelius books at first, but I stumbled across, well, first of all, the Elric books. And these were my introduction to sword and sorcery, and I absolutely loved them. They were just so utterly strange. I just, I, what, what I, I love about sword and sorcery in general is encapsulated within those, which is they are like fever dreams. They're short, they're punchy, they're filled with strange imagery. They do more in 15 pages than most high fantasy does in 600. And yeah, they, for a, a teenage boy, were just like crack. I was hooked on them immediately. And I just devoured everything, first of all, by Moorcock that I could. And then at some point, I stumbled across one of the paperback copies of uh, the Conan reprints, the ones that Lynn Carter and Elspark de Camp hacked up. And they, yeah, and, and even in that butchered form, I, I absolutely fell in love with those and scoured secondhand shops when I was at university picking up every volume that I could and then <laughs> obviously got into Lovecraft and Clark Ash and Smith and yeah I mean, and, and the whole lot just sort of fused together in my head but it was Moorcock <laughs> was my gateway drug. Okay and do you remember was there any particular uh, moment early in your reading of uh, Elric that just made you go oh okay there's something here you know was it maybe the choir of mutilated <laughs> slaves on Melnibony <laughs> uh, each one mutilated to produce a specific uh, you know note 
note or something oh, yes. maybe a bit more demonic and baroque. By the way, speaking of fever dreams, I know, I know, I know you know this, but for listeners, one interesting thing about Moorcock's first six Elric novels and a bunch of other novels he wrote in that period is that some of them, and I swear you can usually tell, uh, he claims to have written in a week or less. Hmm. with a patented or even a three-day method, I believe, that's done the rounds on the internet if you look hmm. for the Moorcock three-day novel method. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> Just speaking I, of fever dreams. And- I, I don't know if this is officially true, but I, I do remember reading that large amounts of amphetamines were re- involved in that process. Yeah, and it's like you both have to kind of believe and, and be sceptical at the same time Anytime you hear about, like, you know, insert creative did insert drug in the hmm. 60s and 70s to inspire them slash get to a deadline. <laughs> Also, <laughs> I can absolutely believe it with, with those early Morcock books. Just the sheer pace of them and the energy. Yeah, they, they feel like literary amphetamines. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, sorry. So, so do you remember in particular the weird elements if there was uh, one moment that uh, really hit you? It doesn't have to be the first one per se, but if you can. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any one particular moment. I obviously, I mean, this is you know, the most obvious answer you could come up with, I think, for the Elric books. But the thing that really grabbed me was Stormbringer. Uh, you know, this, this demonic sword, this rune sword that drank human souls and, uh, powered its its wielder giving him energy giving him the the power to overcome his own physical weakness and just that as an idea that is an image yeah i i you know as a teenage boy again i found that well, I found it really interesting because it was, in a lot of ways, a critique or almost an inversion of standard power fantasies, that you had someone who had this amazing power at his disposal, but the price for it was so shocking, so steep, that would you ever really want to pay that? And that aspect yeah, the sword of the story was definitely really an unreliable. Built. Sorry, yeah, yeah, the sword, the sword is definitely an unreliable ally, to say the oh, least. God, yes. You know, I don't think it's too spoilery to say uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar already that this sword has a tendency to kind of zig when he, Elric wants it to zag yes. and as a result cleave through someone he loves <laughs> more than once <laughs> yeah and so, you know, oh my God. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I dig that. Yeah, no, Stormbringer's a perfect set. Also, as an aside, I, if Morcock isn't getting royalties for House of the Dragon, which is on TV at the moment, he fucking should be. <laughs> when I saw Damon Targaryen turn up wearing that winged dragon helm in the black armor, looking pale faced, long white hair there. I mean, Matt yeah. Smith turned out to be the first Elric on screen. <laughs> Absolutely. And boy, the understandable moans of frustration I've seen in Sword and Sorcery Corners of people going, oh, we'll never get an Elric adaptation now because people will say they're just ripping off House of Dragons. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. Right. So, next question. In his creator's writings, the big man himself, Conan, was always interesting to me for fearing no man or beast, but having his blood absolutely chilled by the numinous, the sorceress, mm-hmm. the weird. I've heard it said the difference between, you know, Lovecraftian slash like weird fiction and Conan, if not SNS in general, is that in the former, the protagonist goes mad. And in the latter, the protagonist is frightened, but charges into battle anyway. Would you agree with that assessment or does it seem a bit, you know, shallow? 
I'd say the Lovecraftian trope of the protagonist going mad isn't quite as common in Lovecraftian horror as it's made out to be. It certainly does turn up a fair bit, even in Lovecraft's work, but it's not everywhere, and there are more exceptions than there are examples of it happening. But on the other hand, yeah, it it is a trope for a reason, because it does happen. Yeah, I mean, with with sword and sorcery, there are an awful lot of elements that are common between Lovecraftian horror and sword and sorcery in terms of the types of antagonists, in terms of the structure, in terms of, you know, as you said, that brushing up against you know, the ineffable. The, at the same time, you know, they they are very different things. Yes, it is partly that you do have these more driven characters who are perhaps better equipped to face down these threats to deal with sorcery and strange gods and unnatural demons and stuff like that. But also, I think there's a different set of genre tropes in there that... Uh, yeah, I, I think, as you say, the the protagonist to run into den- danger instead of running away from it. Yeah, I, I mean... Um, Sorry, I've talked myself around in circles here, and I've forgotten what the original question is. <laughs> That's okay. I just was curious if you agreed with the assessment, basically, that you know, think, the difference oh, okay. is, you know, in, Love, in Lovecraft, yeah. you gibber or get turned into mincemeat, and in, uh, you know, so in sorcery, you're, you are scared, but you overcome that fear and charge into battle or whatever. Yeah, in which case, I'd say that, yes, I mean, obviously... The difference in most sword and sorcery is that you are dealing with a a hero rather than just simply a protagonist. In a lot of Lovecraftian fiction, I particularly the stuff written by Lovecraft, the characters are almost the opposite of a Conan-type character. They're passive observers. They aren't really there to change anything. They're there to see the horror and react to it or document it, but not really to confront it. I think the genre has moved a bit beyond that, and there certainly is a lot of pulpy mythos fiction in which you do get protagonists who uh, fight against the mythos, and those perhaps have got more to do with... uh, or rather, those have perhaps got more in common with sword and sorcery than Lovecraft's own fiction. And, I mean, even in Lovecraft, there, there are some characters, I mean, there are some stories where, you know, there is a bit of a fight against the mythos, but they are the exceptions rather than the rules. Right. Like, I, I must admit, I was thinking of the RPG uh, spinoff of Pulp Cthulhu, but mm. it is a spinoff. It's its own branch rather than yeah. being, you know, folded into the main thing. And but then also you talk about the main thing, Call of Cthulhu, the original story. They drive the boat right through him. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't work, but I mean that's pretty ballsy, I think. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I guess there's exceptions to any broad statement. But yeah, but with the Call of Cthulhu, it's weird because you see that as a flashback told by someone who has later died, and you're you're, you're seeing their journal there. The protagonist in The Call of Cthulhu is just someone who is passively almost assembling all this information and processing it. And he much more is a classic Lovecraft investigator. He's he's picking together all these tales like Legrasse's story from uh, the Louisiana Bayou and assembling them mm. to make uh, a whole to understand the greater shape of all these things. But he, as a character, is is not an adventurous sort at all. He's a scholar. Right. So, no, you make a good point. So maybe a, a big difference between the two genres, a way of articulating that, 
is that in the sort of Lovecraftian tradition of horror and the weird, it's almost like you're reading a call to action. You know, it's almost as if the mm. author's saying, well, can someone do something about this? Because <laughs> I'm in an insane asylum or dead or whatever. And, you know, so and sorcery is uh, I'm doing something or trying to or getting eaten, but whatever, I'm, I'm acting. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the difference. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And it does come down to, yeah, as I, as I said, the type of protagonist, but also the fact that it is a different genre. So you've got different expectations of the kind of story you're reading. Right, right. But I, I guess I just can't help but think so much about the intersection between them, which, mm. which I mean, is what we're here for, I guess, in this whole interview, but also mm. uh, this next question. This intersection of the weird and historical adventure fiction birthing sword and sorcery was no mere chance happening. The father of Sword Sorcery, Robert E. Howard, was friends with uh, some guy named Howard Philip Lovecraft, <laughs> arguably the father of modern horror, I've heard it said by certain bearded individuals I'm talking to right now, uh, <laughs> at least in the Anglo uh, sphere. Scott, you've certainly read more of their correspondence than I have. Could you please share with listeners what you know, or maybe a summary of what you know, of how Lovecraft influenced Howard's work? Did they, and sort of nested within that, I'm, I'm wondering, did they know each other before Howard published the Shadow Kingdom, known to most SNS heads as the very first sword and sorcery tale, or oh gosh, <laughs> I can't <laughs> actually remember when precisely their friendship started. If you hang on for just a second, uh, I do have some right. notes from. I'll put some uh, music did... underneath this. Uh, we're having a Google break, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Just hang in there. Try to find my. Trying to find my notes from when we did the Good Friends episodes on Robert E. Howard because I did make a note of this. Mm. Okay, so no, this is uh, Scott's research, not Google. Uh, please uh, adjust your respect accordingly, uh, upward. Because um, <laughs> I know, right? Like, I'm bugging Scott for the bloody answer here. <laughs> right. Okay. So, no, Robert E. Howard had published The Shadow Kingdom before he and Lovecraft were acquainted. Not by uh, too long. So, The Shadow Kingdom came out in 1929, and Lovecraft and Howard became friends uh, in 1930, or at least correspondents in 1930, when Lovecraft read The Rats and the Balls in Weird Tales and was very taken with it. Oh, sorry. Did I say Lovecraft? When Howard read The Rats and the Balls in Weird Tales and was very taken with it, and wrote Lovecraft a fan letter via Farnsworth Wright, who forwarded it on, uh, Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales. And uh, the two started a correspondence and became friends for, uh, well, the next six years until they both died. But, you know, I mean, during, during that time, they wrote an incredible number of letters to each other. I, obviously, I mean, Howard was... A fairly um, prolific correspondent, but compared to Lovecraft, <laughs> Lovecraft, <laughs> I mean, obviously he's known for the fiction that he wrote. Uh, he also wrote a lot of poetry and uh, essays and so on, but he's remembered for his fiction and collaborations. But the thing he wrote the most of was letters. He wrote something like a 100,000 letters in his lifetime. <laughs> And a lot of these were with Howard, and the two talked about everything from the types of fiction they were writing, their ideas about it, to politics, to just you know general friend stuff. There, there are 
two books that collect all the surviving uh, letters together. And I, I don't know that I'd necessarily recommend reading them because you are fundamentally reading someone's correspondence and it's not written to be that interesting to a third party. And there's a lot of repetition, particularly when they're talking about politics. There's also, considering the two men involved, <laughs> inevitably quite a lot of racism. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that makes for uncomfortable reading. But... At the same time, it does provide some insights into the origins of both of their work and, and also the way that it crossed over. And I mean, going back to what you were saying before about, you know, how their friendship shaped a lot of this stuff, it wasn't just them. I, there was this group of writers who contributed to Weird Tales who were known as the Lovecraft Circle. And the three main ones were obviously Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and Clark Ash and Smith. And Smith, I think, probably even more than uh, Lovecraft and Howard, represents that intersection of horror and sword and sorcery. You see that more in his fiction mm. than you do in the other two. When Howard wrote horror and, and he wrote sword and sorcery, they tended to be quite discreet things. There were horror elements, obviously, in the sword and sorcery, and you know there was a little bit of crossover, but they tended to be quite discreet. And Lovecraft arguably never really wrote sword and sorcery. He wrote some fantasy, which perhaps has got some elements in common, but it doesn't really feel like that kind of sword and sorcery that we see in other writers. But there, in Smith's work, it's, you know, the two are just intertwined all the way through. In his Hyperborean and Zothique stories in particular, uh, these are horror, very often Cthulhu mythos horror, and sword and sorcery just as one package. Right, and I mean, you know, to pick on one word out of that sentence there, Hyperborea, right? Mm. If you look for it, you'll find it, <laughs> well, in a lot of places afterwards, because people have read this stuff and loved it, but from the contemporary works, you'll find it in Howard, of course, uh, but also in Lovecraft, but also in uh, Ashton Smith, and I wonder where even that word who who got that one uh, into oh, the, right. the stew. Oh, right. Okay. It comes from it comes from uh, Greek mythology, Hyperborea. It's the uh, the the far northern land where the northern winds come from. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I honestly, uh, my ignorant ass over here thought that was like <laughs> something you know Howard or Lovecraft came up with, and then they all kind of liked it and, and passed well, it around. Okay. Well, I mean, no, I mean uh, Howard had his own riff on it. He called it Hyborea rather than Hyperborea. Right. Sorry. But yes. it serves the same purpose. Yeah, he had the Hyborean age, but Hyborea, as described in his uh, fiction, is something very much like the Hyperborea of uh, Clark Ashton. Smith's work, but at the same time, yeah, they 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 are subtly different in a lot of ways. Okay, well then, I, it sounds like I should expand the question slightly. So Clark Ashton Smith is in this uh, this mixture here, and I have read a few of his stories, and I've loved everything I've written, but I haven't had a chance yet to go deep on him. Though certainly I shall. You know, did he did he sort of pick up a lot of stuff off of Lovecraft and then run with it, or did he already bring a lot of his own stuff to the table first, and then all three guys kind of cross pollinated? Uh, you know, how how did that go in terms of, as I say, the origin point of quote unquote the weird and how it got mixed in with the sword and sorcery? Yeah. Well, I think there is the temptation to look back at all this cross-pollination between those stories, particularly those three, but some of the others in the circle as well, people like mm. C.L. Moore and Henry Cutner and Fritz Lieber, and you know, to, uh, to look at them as perhaps collaborating and world-building. But I don't think that's the case at all. 
I think what you have here instead is a bunch of writers who are friends who are playfully including bits of each other's work in their own as Easter eggs rather than sort of saying, oh, yeah, this is a Cthulhu Mythos story and I will establish bits of the Cthulhu Mythos. I mean, the Cthulhu Mythos as a concept didn't exist at this stage. That was something August Derleth uh, stamped upon yep. all these after Lovecraft's death. Lovecraft... He obviously, you know, incorporated different ideas and themes and entities throughout his work and, uh, you know, other people borrowed those, but he wasn't necessarily setting out to create a cohesive mythology. But where you've got these elements that appear in each other's work, yeah, I, I think it is just like, um, homage more than anything else is, you know, oh, I, you know, I, for example, Lovecraft used uh, Clark Ashton Smith's creation Sarthogia, or at least mentioned him in a few stories. But it is just one of a list of names, the same way as he did, say, The King in Yellow, which he picked up from Robert yep. W. Chambers, and just put that in there. Not because he was looking to incorporate them in any meaningful way, but just because he thought it would be a cool reference to put in this list of names. Where this is become more codified is in recent years or more recent years mainly through fandom and particularly once you start getting to the role-playing game because you you get writers who uh, you know, creating role-playing game scenarios and campaigns look back at all these disparate elements from the stories and want to try to expand them and you not just expand them but use them in ways that can then be explained to other people wanting to create their own games and creating a cohesive whole where there wasn't necessarily one in the first place yeah, I guess there's always that uh, thing, isn't it, where something weird and wondrous comes about and people fall in love with it, and then they're like, how can I put order on this chaos that I love in part because it's chaos? How yeah. can we either figure out the the MCU of it all, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, or, you know, as I maybe am not articulating very well, I, I, I find myself looking for who's patient zero, you know? Did, <laughs> did Lovecraft infect Howard, uh, and then Howard infected Clark Ashton Smith, you know? When really, yeah, as you say, it's a bunch of, buddies all chatting with each other and loving each other's work and riffing on each other in the sense yeah. of, you know, as you say, Easter eggs and so on, who all themselves have their own widely disparate, partially overlapping body of influences, you know, various uh, people from the Edwardian and late Victorian era that, you know, they're all picking up on. Um, well, so, yeah, so, maybe, maybe so, my question is... Uh, oh. I was going to say, the, the most interesting example of all this, I think, is Fritz Lieber's involvement. Because Fritz Lieber was, um, as a very young man, a contributor to Weird Tales at the same time as the core Lovecraft circle. And he was a Lovecraft fan and they corresponded because Lovecraft corresponded with, well, everyone from that time. And I, Lieber, when he was starting out, uh, writing sword and sorcery, particularly the first Fafford and the Grey Mouse's story, he actually wrote that explicitly as a Kazuna mythos story. And he wrote to Lovecraft and sent him a draft of it and said, oh, what do you think about this? And Lovecraft looked at it and said, you know, I, I think it would actually be better if you made this your own thing and took those references out. You know, you, you don't need to tie it in. And of course, Lieber did that and you know, then sort of established his own mythology within those stories. 
Yes, the uh, the adept's gambit, which mm. even its later revised element, I find most library fans kind of don't much care for. But then you know you tell them, well, it was literally the first one; he was still figuring it out. Yeah. Plus, uh, I always think of how Lovecraft also recommended to him that he change um, what was then, I believe, meant to be uh, Alexandria into his own fantasy city because that way the history nerds won't eat you alive, and that's how you got Langmar. So hey. <laughs> um, now, sort of related to all this, um, I would say the mind sort of boggles as if trying to process non-Euclidean angles when I try to imagine what a sword and sorcery tale written by Lovecraft would have even been like. As you say, you know, he did do some kind of fantasy-ish stories, but I would argue, at least from what I've seen, they're much more indebted to like Lord Dunsany, who oh, yeah. is wonderful, but not what you'd call hard SNS for most of his tales. Still, you know, would you say the active influence flowed anywhere near as much in the other direction? You know, did Howard have much of an influence on Lovecraft? Because when I look at it, it always feels very one-sided, you know. Howard kind of drew a lot of weird elements and fun names and stuff from Lovecraft, and Lovecraft just kept doing his thing. But maybe I'm missing something. There was some crossover. For example, in the thing on the doorstep, if I remember correctly, um, Lovecraft makes a reference to the people of the monolith, which was a creation of Robert E. Howard. And, I mean, again, there were a few Easter eggs like that. Um, but nothing really stylistically, creatively, right? Like... No, not style, No, not, not in terms of co actual content. It was just Easter eggs. You, like you say, it was very much more Lord Dunsany who was the influence on the fantasy there. The Dreamland stories that Lovecraft wrote, I mean, they're pretty much in Dunsany fanfic. I mean, they, they really do feel like that. And I mean, th there are perhaps slightly more elements of adventure in some of them. I mean, the doom that came to Sarnath, potentially, you might see a bit of yeah. Howard in that if you really squint. And there's a, a big battle scene about two-thirds of the way through uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is probably the biggest action scene that Lovecraft wrote in his entire career. And I, it's it's only like two pages long, but it does perhaps yeah, but for him. <laughs> have some. Yeah, it does perhaps have some of the energy and excitement of Howard. But you know, fundamentally, they were very different writers with very different interests. And yeah, uh, you know, there was, I think, a a raw masculinity to Howard's work that is not present in any way in Lovecraft's. No, no, I think that's fair to say. Well, all right. Um. Speaking of blending, it isn't hard to imagine what makes for a weak blending of the weird into SNS. You know, I feel it's just kind of like a shallowification of Lovecraftian horror, just throwing some tentacles and overwrought adjectives in the mix, describing in exhaustive detail something you ironically refer to as indescribable, and then throwing <laughs> a big guy with a sword at it. Yes. However, what's maybe a bit meatier is uh, me asking you, Scott, what do you think makes for an effective, powerful blending of weird elements into a sword and sorcery story? Where does it really get nailed and how? Going back again to Clark Ashton Smith, I think that he was the master of this. Bring all these weird elements together into something that was adventurous. The pinnacle of them, in my opinion, probably was one of his Zothique stories called The Charnel God. And this is an amazing little story, which introduces a, a deity that's become a cornerstone of the Cthulhu mythos, particularly in gaming, a deity called Mordigian, uh, the sort of god of the dead. Mm -hmm. 
And it sort of brings in this quest to rescue someone who's been kidnapped by a sorcerer as a potential sacrifice. But then there are, there's this hidden temple that is guarded, not even guarded, but where the priests are ghouls and they serve more in and there's necromancy going on. And it's all these elements of horror and the weird, but undeniably an adventure story running through it all. And I, it, it is just perfect. And it's got a, a, a fantastically weird resolution with Mordigian turning up and doing things you wouldn't expect. And yeah, I mean, that that to me is yeah the perfect example of how you can bring these elements together and not just have it be, as you say, uh, you know, a lazy combination of of tropes that don't really fit together or have been badly overused. Mm, you know, I, I I that's literally my next Clark Ashton Smith story to read, so I'll uh, I'll have to check that out and, and get back to you. But <laughs> I think you make a you know, convincing argument. I, I the one of the ones I have read that I think of as well as being pretty strong sword and sorcery, but also certainly has elements of weird fiction in it um, beyond just tropes. Is the one whose name I'm messing up. Sorry, listener, I'm having a real morning, but it's the bugger who loses his arm and he tells you in the first sentence. So that's not a spoiler. Uh, the thief of the sat, um, Satrap Zeros or whatever. Uh, it's like a guy basically saying, you know, I'm a one-armed thief. Let me tell you how that happened. And he and he goes mm. into a, a temple and terrible things happen. I mean, I don't want to spoil a probably almost 100-year-old story at this point. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah, shoot. I can't remember Listen, which one that is. free to read online. I'll, I'll, link, I'll link it in the show notes. And, and Scott, I'll, if I think of it later, the name, I'll tell you. Sorry, listener. Great <laughs> podcast gold here. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> So, yes, this next question here leaps off of a quote from an article by Brian Murphy on a late second wave sword and sorcery novel, Keith Taylor's Bard, which I'll read now. The quote is this. Fowl discovers that the hag does not operate accordingly to commonly understood myth. Quote, the legends were wrong, Fowl realizes. With this deft touch, back to Brian here, with this deft touch, Taylor makes the monstrous and magical feel real in this tale of comeuppance and the end of youthful innocence. Um, I'm quoting Brian's article and Taylor's bard within that because I think it gets at the heart of what often separates the capital W weird from, say, classic monster myths like the werewolf. You know, encountering a werewolf would scare the holy hell out of me, but at least I'd know what to do. Mm. You know, shoot it with a silver bullet or at least uh, escape its clutches until daylight because I'd heard the legends, because I could trust the legends. Would you agree that a key aspect of weird fiction is that, you know, capital W weird creatures and phenomena tend to come from outside. I mean, there are our legends, right? Mm. But they tend to come from outside our legends that they don't come with a mythic instruction manual. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, when you have demons and gods and otherworldly entities, or at least things that are described in those terms in sword and sorcery, the best ones are ones that, yeah, aren't really quite any of those things and are much closer to the Lovecraftian definitions of those things, where they are alien. And I think this ties in with what I'd say is the big defining difference between sword and sorcery and other types of fantasy, which is that magic in them is a very different thing. And this ties in with these gods and monsters where you have high fantasy or, you know, classic, uh, heroic fantasy. Maybe you do have magic that is 
beneficial or benign or follow some kind of rules. Um, maybe it's divine in provenance where you have magical artifacts. They might be frightening to some extent, but they are at least of our world, or at least they're created by forces we understand or at least can find some human sympathy in. But in Sword and Sorcery, all this stuff, more often than not, is something really alien and weird and frightening and unnatural, something from outside, something that all healthy and sane people shun. And when you have a sorcerer, you just know through the fact uh, that they're practicing sorcery that they're up to no good just because the act of sorcery itself is such a transgression that their aims are almost irrelevant, even if they're doing something relatively noble or at least sympathetic. The fact that they're using sorcery to do it is a transgression. And yeah, I, I think, you know, that, like you say, that ties in with the, the myths of the monsters and so on, that we see that everything is something that doesn't really belong in our world, something that isn't healthy, something that's, you know, like a, almost like a sickness. Yeah, an expression of something, but we don't know what. And I, I really like that. It reminds me of um, listening to what I've heard some people say it's like when you have one of something, by and large, I mean, sometimes you get like a horde, I guess, but, but by and large, when you have one of something like this, it's a monster, it's weird, it's strange. When you have them all over the show in the ecosystem, like a lot of the monsters that you find in contemporary fantasy, D&D, &D, et cetera, mm -hmm. that style, you just have animals. You just have yeah. animals that we don't have in real life, but they're animals. They're part of the ecosystem. It's less, it can be interesting. I mean, animals can be bloody interesting, but uh, it's, it's not the same thing. Well, I think it, it also introduces another problem where, I mean, oh gosh, this might be going off topic, but where you've got these uh, sort of humanoid or intelligent races like orcs from Tolkien. Yeah, that introduces all sorts of really uncomfortable elements. It's, it, it's like, it's like the racism you're allowed to have. Yeah, that, that you have <laughs> yeah. these, these, you know, entities that are sort of like people, they, you know, look a bit like us, they're intelligent, we can speak with them, but they're evil. And so as a result, you know, it's, it's okay to kill them. You, you can do that without feeling bad. It's like zombies, but way more sticky. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like here's the horde you're allowed to kill and feel okay about. Yeah. And I don't think you get that so much in sword and sorcery, because like you say, these entities are unique, even where they're intelligent. They are something, yeah, something that you can't really map onto any human analog. The one exception to that that I can think of might be the serpent people from Robert E. Howard's uh, The Shadow Kingdom where, yeah, you could potentially see those in a similar light to, you know, say, Tolkien's orcs. But at the same time, you don't, if I remember correctly, see more than one of them in the story, so it still feels like something unique, even though it's the face of this ancient empire. Right, and it's like, you, you know, they're presented as this thing that will disguise itself as your fellow humans. And mm. so it's, I think it's more about that who can you trust element rather than here's a horde of evil things you can stab and not feel bad about. Exactly. Don't think too hard about what culture that inspired the author uh, when creating their clothes <laughs> and music and stuff. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I it, is, it is truly one of the things I love most. And honestly, even when I think about, say, uh, I tried a Redwall novel, right? So animals. Mm. And I was having a good old time reading about a badger and the, his friends and so on. And I remember the part that turned me off uh, a bit. No, you know, it's still fine. They're, they're good books. If you like them, you like them. But that just turned me off was when uh, there was this moral quandary in the book. I'm sorry, listeners. I can't remember which one it was precisely. It was a long series, but uh, I just grabbed one off the secondhand shelf. But uh, yeah, there was this big moral quandary in the thing about like a very young rat who got separated from its people and wound up being, at least for a little while, taken care of and raised by the nice mice um and other characters of this book which were animals clearly identified as being fundamentally good and it was like you know this rat didn't fit in but you know we're all trying and the conclusion the book ultimately reached was that the rat was inherently evil and nothing they'd done would have made a difference <laughs> and it became a villain and we're off to the races and i just sat there and went fuck that <laughs> yeah. like you're even if even you're you know imagine if winnie the pooh was just like sorry eeyore but you know donkeys are just inherently evil <laughs> we don't care about you or your problems your emotions I, aren't real and uh i'm gonna see how much stuffing you have inside you now <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, I i guess i can almost see where they're coming from that red wall thing just because you know rats and mice look quite a lot alike particularly when they're young but rats actually prey on mice they actually they go out and hunt them and kill them so i i guess if you looked at it from the point of view of it almost being like a cuckoo or something like that you've this predator that you brought into your midst sort of thinking that it's like you and then it grows up into something that you know it is is just by instinct going to prey on you and eat your young then yeah maybe there's an element of that but if you're starting to look at it from an anthropomorphic point of view then yeah that's uncomfortable i guess just yeah in the context of a fantasy story in general i'm more inclined to think of them as little humans or demi-humans or whatever the heck i mean it's right there in the thing isn't it demi-humans they're not quite us mm. um <laughs> oh well oh well so yeah one of the reasons i and many others enjoy sword and sorcery fiction is seeing proactive outsider protagonists who have an incredibly firm sense of identity you know conan never fully assimilates never apologizes for being a barbarous mm. marian for example it's that very nature that saves him in most instances and this is expressed at times when yes facing the kinds of weird things that turn as we've been saying most horror protagonists into the gibbering wrecks of mincemeat they face both the weird and the fear that the weird inspiring them head on in this sense so and sorcery can be a very inspiring genre However, there's another adjacent element I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Returning to Brian Murphy again, who listens to the podcast? Hi, Brian. Uh, <laughs> this time, the final chapter of his book, On Sword and Sorcery, Flame and Crimson, where, to paraphrase, he argues that the genre allows us to go beyond the boundaries of our normal lives, and upon returning, you know, when you finish the story, we are enabled to see the world through a new perspective, to undergo a process of re-enchantment. I love that re-enchantment mm. and i think that the weird has a role to play there too even when it's terribly threatening you know how would you feel about that the idea that having these frightening numinous beyond what man can understand and comprehend you know weird elements i nonetheless in, in in creatures and gods but even settings as well i often think of the environments that you wind up in um you know more bizarre multiversal stuff certainly comes to mind i think that it has a role to play in how sword and sorcery can re-enchant the world and, and i'm curious how would you say it does or doesn't i'm going to start off trying to answer your question by not answering your question so yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> i as we've established, horror and sword and sorcery are kissing cousins. And I know a lot of horror fans. Very, very few of them are scared by horror. 
Instead, they find that there is something within the genre, within its iconography and ideas and tropes that speaks to something within them, something that energizes them, something that sparks their imagination. And that by experiencing these stories and these monsters, then that, that feeds that imagination with them, within them. And I wonder whether what you're talking about there is something quite similar in that we're experiencing these stories as long established fans of the genre in a different way than someone who might be coming to them cold. That if this is the first sword and sorcery story you've read, then sure, you might feel a bit frightened, you might feel that adrenaline coursing, you might feel that that fear about, oh, you know, is the hero or heroine going to survive this? Um, you know, what cleverness is going to get them out of it and so on. But I think as you become more entrenched in a genre, and you know, I'd say this applies to sword and sorcery, that you get different things out of it. And I mean, certainly these days, if I read Robert E. Howard, uh, for example, I, I reread a lot of the Conan stories quite recently. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure the elements you're talking about there are quite what I get out of them this time. I mean, part of it, yes, is going back to stories that I read when I was young, and there's a sort of cozy familiarity and nostalgia there. But part of it is also just this uh, you know, appreciation of the craft and the storytelling in there. And part of it is yeah, just this um, appreciation for the, uh, like I say, said with horror, for the kind of tropes and imagery and so on that goes into there and the way that they they spark with my own imagination, the ideas that they stir up within me. So, yeah, I, I suppose there is perhaps this, this element of being taken with the, the numinous and ineffable elements within them, but mostly, mostly it's just because it's a kind of world and a kind of story and a kind of set of images that yeah, just I feel vibrant to me. Yeah, and I think that's the word, isn't it? Vibrant. But I, I, you know, SNS has that energy that um, can be found in horror. I mean, I'm making broad statements, so there's going to be exceptions mm. to anything. But I do think that the horror can be kind of almost like the... I don't know that I've been terribly frightened any time I've read a sword and sorcery story, although a few times I have kind of leaned my head back and gone, Jesus, uh, when someone comes out with something particularly uh, galling or you know unnerving. But it also, it's like, I, I, I find myself thinking, to go back to an easy point of reference, you know, you'd think this is the only Conan story I've read because I mentioned it so much on the show, People in the Black <laughs> Circle. And you've got Conan and a bunch of fellas all trying to get up the hill to the wizard's tower to punch him on the nose. And they're all ready for, you know, monsters, wizards, you know, soldiers, if they've got their own. We're all ready, guys, swords out, yeah. And then what's that coming down the mountain? Oh, it's a small cloud, and it's kind of bouncing. <laughs> what? And then someone just, you know, fires an arrow at it, because, I don't know, it's, it's scary. And then the thing explodes, and all of a sudden you've got everybody wasting their arrows, because little bouncy exploding clouds are coming towards them, and it's so goofy and weird and also genuinely threatening it kills a couple of guys and yeah. it's at odds with a lot of the more mundane threats that they've been dealing with and is fitted into this very grounded but nonetheless majestic setting loosely you know based on uh you know mountainsides and deserts and whatnot in the uh, sort of vaguely afghanistan meets pakistan kind of region yeah. uh, or india as it would have been called then uh when it was written and something about that just i remember closing the book and looking down and going god 
Imagine it from real life, you know, you just once in a while an exploding cloud was bouncing around the corner <laughs> at you. And it's, I, I picked a very goofy on the Super Mario element of the weird, but it, uh, I don't know, it made me, it made me feel a little weird. That, that and some of the big multiversal weird, strange things described in, uh, in Elric stories, you know, it will sometimes make me feel like, you know, because there's more possibility in fiction than we sometimes let ourselves think. And then that in turn makes me think there's maybe more possibility in life than we let ourselves think. And that's at least how I personally have connected to this idea of, of, of re-enchantment yeah. by way of uh, the weird and fantastic elements yeah. of sword and sorcery. So I don't know. It was, it's fine if we have different uh, places to sit on this, but uh, that's where I am. Yeah, Moorcock definitely has that effect on me. I'd say more than any other writer that some of the stuff that he throws into the Eternal Champion stories is just so weird and out there that it does create a sense of wonder that no other fantasy has ever done in me. But at the same time, you know, a lot of what I've, I enjoy about Sword and Sorcery is the fact that it it does have these horror elements and that it stirs up the same kind of emotional reaction or imaginative reaction in me that reading a good horror story does. Uh, I, I don't get that so much from Robert E. Howard or even Moorcock. The, the writer who I'll always go back to for that is Carl Edward Wagner. Yeah. Uh, Wagner is still probably my favorite sword and sorcery writer. Uh, his Kane stories are just this perfect fusion of what I love about sword and sorcery, what I love about horror. And I don't think it's you know any uh, coincidence that he's at least as well known for his horror as he is for his sword and sorcery. He wrote both prolifically. Mm-hmm. But you know, when he crosses the strands, I, he, there's, there's one of the Cain stories in particular. There's a story called Undertow. Have you ever read it? No, I've read all oh. the novels and I'm, I'm working my way through the short stories. I've oh, heard tales yeah. of that tale, but I've yeah. not read it. I, Undertow is, I think, not just one of the best sword and sorcery stories I've read, although it is more of a, almost a parody of sword and sorcery at times. Not, a, not in terms of it being funny. It's, it's not a funny story, but you have this Conan type character who turns up as a foil in it at some stage, and he is just basically everyone's punching bag in it. But, it is absolutely at its core a horror story. Kane as a character is a protagonist in the stories, but in any other sword and sorcery writer's hands, he'd be the antagonist. He is a sorcerer, he is amoral, he is out for power, he does genuinely horrible things, more so than, say, any of Moorcock's sometimes morally dubious characters. But here, yeah, Kane is something... <laughs> All, all to himself. And the stuff that he does in Undertow is, oh dear God. I mean, you, you can see why he does it, and it's perhaps even vaguely noble in its goals, but it is one of the most absolutely horrific stories I've read. Ah, well, that makes me look forward to it even more. I mean, you know, you, I'm sure you're aware, uh, and listeners, uh, some of you may already know this, but Carl Edward Wagner, he didn't even like the term sword and sorcery, I don't think, and he definitely didn't like calling Cain a hero. He could call him sort of a villain hero, villain dash hero, mm. which feels like a precursor to the term anti-hero, although I think that existed back then. So, hmm. yeah. Um, but, 
certainly he was he was comfortable having Kane just do the worst. That, you know, and that's mm-hmm. part of what I like about Sword and Sorcery is that it's not glued to well, it's not heroic fantasy, right? Yeah. Sometimes people behave in heroic fashion, but it tends to be self-serving, even if they're saving absolutely yeah. whatever while they're at it. Yeah, and certainly with Kane, you have to buy into that. If you look to Kane for heroism, you'll be pretty disappointed. <laughs> um, but if you're looking for weird and out there stuff, it's true. Yeah, he's got a lot. Yeah. He sometimes does the right thing, but only if it coincides with his own interests. Yeah, yeah. only if it happens to coincide with him uh, sort of working his way up to conquering the world. Oh, shoot, didn't work out again. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be around <laughs> for another go in the next novel. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Scott, I, I have one more question here, but as you recall, mm. it was sort of half-arsed and not really put together as well as I would like. And we've said so many interesting things. I think this is a good place to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this with me. I would say, uh, listener, if you are not familiar with Sword and Sorcery yet, uh, look to it, look for the weird if you're trying to figure out what the difference is. Mm. Uh, in my opinion, that's a big part of it. Uh, and if you're already a fan and trying to tell friends and they go, well, I've already read Sword and Sorcery, I've read Tolkien, say, well, hang on. <laughs> and, and, and again, uh, look to the weird. Look to the weird. Uh, so, yeah, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. If people oh. want to find you uh, and your work, where should they look? Oh, well, thank you very much, Oliver. Um, yes, if people want to hear me talking about, well, particularly Lovecraftian horror, but you know, sometimes sword and sorcery and all sorts of other stuff, but and, and also a lot of stuff about role-playing games, they should listen to the podcast that I do with Paul Fricker and Matt Sanderson called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. We, all three of us, work on the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game in different capacities and we have put out something like 250 episodes now talking about the game horror fiction horror movies the psychology of horror and or and and even some sword and sorcery stuff so yeah you might find that interesting if you're into role-playing games as well and you want to hear some being played, I do a lot of work with a couple of actual play podcasts. I, I run a Pop Cthulhu campaign for How We Roll, and I've been running a lot of one-shots and uh, short campaign uh, for Ain't Slayed Nobody, Oh, as well as appearing as a player on Grizzly Peaks Radio, a game playing Call of Cthulhu. There's a theme there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I would say to any listeners who heard, uh, you know, Good Friends Jackson Elias, 250 plus episodes. Christ. First of all, one thing I really appreciate that I wish more podcasts did, the episodes are very clearly labeled. And part of what allowed me to get into the show and be like, oh, I like this Scott guy. I should have him on, <laughs> was the fact that I could very easily move up and down the archives, find what was interesting to me, you know, and, and dip in and out, including, yes, Scott mentioned some very good episodes on this genre, sword and sorcery. All right, Scott, thank you so much for being here. I'll link to all oh. that in the show notes, uh, listeners, so it's easy to find. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Fantastic. I look forward to it. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Scott, and I'll see you soon.